you inherit your grandpa's hammer and you break the handle and you put a new handle on it and then you bust the head and you put a new head on it, is it still grandpa's hammer? Hey, what's up, everyone? This is the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Billick, and I'm back. I don't know how many of you saw my messages on social media saying that this episode is going to be just a little bit later than what is typical of me. I try to stick to like every two weeks or so. I know that gets fudged, but this one was pushed back because I took a much-needed family vacation uh, try to get away from it all. Went somewhere warm, Southern California, from my uh, home here in Michigan. I am back now, though, so I'm cold again. Don't worry. But um, yeah, what did I do now that I, I finally got a week off from the podcast? Well, I went and uh, recorded a few more podcast episodes on my vacation from the podcast. So don't worry. it's uh, It wasn't all for nothing. And I gotta say, I I get to record these podcasts in a lot of different environments, and and it's all pretty cool, but I think the two interviews that I did while I was on vacation were probably the two coolest podcast studios that I've ever had, and they were each a lot different. One was in an actual recording uh, production studio on the uh, NBC Universal uh, studio lot, and I'll I'll tell you a bit more about that once that episode once that episode comes up. So that was really cool being in that building and just uh, seeing what that's all about and being in that um, professional studio. The other interview I recorded, our Airbnb that we had, actually was it had a pool out back and it was I got some uh, beautiful sunny warm southern california days so uh the other episode i did i just uh i was sitting out by the pool so yeah a a professional universal studios studio and then uh poolside in santa monica it 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 was pretty rough let me tell you um don't ever try it I'll, i'll take one for the team on this one but i am happy to be back uh glad i could finally get this one out to you another thing i wanted to mention if any of you listened to that episode a couple, just a you know a few episodes ago with Derek Vaden, we talked about the Tuner Tune Thursday hashtag, and I've posted a couple videos to that hashtag, and I, I know Derek has kept up with it, and uh, Jake Sheps, the the great banjo player, Jake Sheps keeps posting a few videos to that too. So it's it's making somewhat of a comeback. But uh, this is my plea to all of you. I know some of you have to have banjos with uh, detuners on them. So by all means, especially those of you who not only have the detuner equipped banjo, but also have Instagram accounts, post some videos of you playing a detuner tune and then make sure you slap that hashtag tuner tune Thursday on it. We need to get some more videos going. I, I, I want to get this started for Derek. He he started it, and uh, I know he enjoys seeing what, what else comes up with that. So it's a lot of fun. So just, just a reminder about that. Yeah, make some videos. Let's see what you got. The other thing I need to do is, of course, acknowledge today's Patreon supporters of the show. And we are very fortunate to have two extremely intelligent, very good-looking Patreon supporters for today. The first one, his name is Tony Newbolt, and he just started playing the banjo recently, and he, through listening to the podcast, 
is discovering all sorts of new bands and musicians to check out. And Tony, for one thing, welcome to the USA. You said you just became a citizen, so congrats on that. Uh, so welcome here. Welcome to the world of banjo. You're, you're, you're doing everything right, and I couldn't be happier to hear that you're checking out some of the guests on the podcast. They are some of the best out there. I guarantee it. So I know, I know you have to be enjoying that. So thanks for your support and, uh, welcome to the club. Uh, the other supporter of today's episode is Russ Vatava. Uh, he's out in Nebraska. He's been playing for a few years and takes lessons with Kristen Scott Benson. We've had a number of Patreon supporters say that they take lessons with Kristen. I don't know if she just has a monopoly on the the banjo lessons market or if there's some sort of correlation. I would I would really love to know because there there is definitely that trend and I I love it and I hope to keep it going. Russ also says he attends uh Midwest Banjo Camp which a lot of you know I am typically at every year running sound and doing banjo things and uh so russ i hope to see you there thank you for your patreon support anybody else who wants to become a supporter of the show please go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast and you'll find out how to get your personal thanks and shout out on the show another thing that uh both russ and tony among many other supporters are getting is that for every episode of the show with a, a guest featured uh, there's a guy named Eli Gilbert who is just a, a brilliant dude at figuring out people's styles and making really cool instructional banjo videos. He makes a custom video for each of these episodes. And if you go to that Patreon page, you can figure out how to be on that list to receive those custom lessons that Eli makes. And it's usually based on uh, whoever the guest is of that episode He'll base it on that person's style or something to do with a, a skill that was maybe talked about on the episode. So that's really cool. Once again, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. And if you like what Eli's doing, and I'm sure you will, make sure you go to his YouTube page and his Patreon too. And, you know, do all the subscribe things, look, you know, look into contributing to his page. He's doing really great stuff. So I know you'll like checking it out. If, however, you're unable to become a Patreon supporter, but you are looking for other ways to help the podcast, the other things to do would be to subscribe and rate on Apple Music. Uh, you could follow me on all the social medias. I'm Picky Fingers on Facebook. Oh, also on Facebook, there's a group for Picky Fingers podcast listeners, and I think it's just called Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. Uh, listeners, fans, and friends, something like that. And it's a, you know, it's a group. So feel free to join that group and chat about banjo stuff if you if you haven't quite gotten your fill yet. On uh, Instagram, I'm picky underscore fingers. Follow me on that. And I, I don't spend out too much spam. It's usually just the occasional video of me playing something or just the episode announcements, which, uh, of course, you'll want to find out about as well. Or on Twitter, I'm at Banjo Podcast. So follow me on all that stuff. Share the episode announcements. Those are all great ways to uh, show your support of the show other than the uh, Patreon site. Today's special guest is Clark Wyatt, 
And Clark is a banjo player and also a guitarist and all-around great musician. He's currently playing in a banjo-slash-guitar with fiddle duo with his partner Betsy Ellis, and that duo is called Betsy and Clark. And the two of them are also involved in the Short Round String Band, so you can catch up with any of those groups. He has a really interesting musical background as a keyboard player and more of an academic jazz type of musician and also has an interesting banjo style as it turns out he's a a finger style player but sticks to kind of a regional ozark more or less old-timey with a a good dose of john hartford and ralph stanley thrown in so you're going to hear him talk about all that he's really great guy and not to mention speaking of cool podcast studios This is my second podcast recorded at the Great Lakes Music Camp on the shores of uh, Lake Michigan. And uh, the the first podcast was the one I did with Bill Evans last year. So it was great to be back in that cabin um, with some of the campers at the camp. And uh, awesome meeting Clark. Uh, He's a great musician, great guy. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. Here it is, Clark Wyatt. Good morning, Clark. It's been nice meeting you and hearing your music here at the Great Lakes Music Camp. Likewise, absolutely. Thanks, man. Tell everyone where you come from, how you got started playing the banjo, and what your early influences were. Oh, oh boy, cool. Well, it's a it's an interesting and windy story. I live in Kansas City, Missouri, uh-huh. with with my partner Betsy Ellis. I'm part of a duo called Betsy and Clark, which is a fiddle and banjo and fiddle and sometimes guitar right. duo. And um, I met Betsy about five and a half years ago now, and uh, we weren't playing together, but we were sweethearts. So mm-hmm. we we met, but we weren't playing music together. Uh, my background is as a pianist and keyboard player. Oh, interesting. Yep. So I had uh, had decades of playing into playing piano and touring bands and studying jazz in college and 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 uh, music composition in college. And was uh, jazz the primary performing vehicle that you were doing? Jazz bands, jazz and rock and experimental and funky Latin. DC go go funk. Yeah. Yeah. I was really <laughs> really crazy. really all over the place and it was a it was a lot of fun and for a number of years and then I just got tired of it. I huh. think I think I had had like six flights in a week and then I was dry, I was flying in and doing like a recording session for somebody I was an engineer and then like I had to drive to New Orleans and play Jazz Fest and then we flew to Colorado and and at what I can't remember the timeline exactly, but I just remember that I was just tired. Just a dizzy sequence. Completely, yeah. completely overwhelmed um with playing music professionally. And hmm. um so I, I I jumped ship and I holed up in a cabin in the mountains in Colorado and and uh, ski bummed the rest of the winter, which was on my bucket bucket list to do. I always wanted to to spend a whole season just skiing every day. Just kind of checked out. So, of, yeah, yeah. I was just like, I'm out. The grind. Yeah, yeah cool. Yeah, and I was like, I thought I was gonna. So anyway, I was hitchhiking to the mountain one day, 
and my the ride in Colorado, like if you have a snowboard and you're walking, people will pick you up because they know where you're going. It's really different than like hitchhiking in the Midwest. It's not too uh, secret. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I I told this person my story of being a musician. You know, music is my life, and and that I was just burnt out, and I don't know what to do. And he, and he said these words to me. It was really fascinating. He said, didn't your daddy ever to tell you to do your second favorite thing for a living? I was like, oh, my God, that, that, that would have been, that's brilliant, you know? That uh, is brilliant, and mine, <laughs> mine didn't either, yeah, so yeah. <laughs> let's hash this out. Yeah, 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 so, yeah, so he didn't, so I went to, um, I was like, oh, yeah, I like vintage motorcycles. So I went to Harley School and became a Harley tech and then worked for, motorcycle companies small and dealerships for a while and uh just i just put music down for except for listening to music Mm -hmm. i just wasn't doing it for a number of years but it was it was empty it wasn't happening for me like not having music in my life was not working so needed it more than you thought yeah absolutely and then so and how many years ago is this that we're we're talking about? Ten. Okay. Yeah, yeah, probably about ten years ago now. So I was I was living uh, in Wimberley, Texas, outside of Austin, mm-hmm. and um, I usually when I wake up in the morning say coffee. That's, coffee is usually my first word <laughs> when I wake up, and um, one day for no explicable reason. When I woke up, I said, I'm going to buy a banjo today. Interesting. Yeah, just for real, this is what happened. I woke up and I was like, I'm going to buy a banjo today. I have no, I don't know if it was my you dream. You had some sort of divine... I hadn't, uh, I hadn't been contemplating it at all. You know, I'd been listening to traditional music, but I hadn't been contemplating playing it at all. Wow. And, yeah. And so, like, I made a pot of coffee, got dressed, drove into Austin. And Still bu- did the coffee first, though. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so your, your second favorite <laughs> yeah, thing yeah. that day as well. Uh, drove, yeah, drove, <laughs> drove into Austin and bought a banjo. And what was it? And what, how did like what did you think you were going to do with it? Well, what what had happened was uh, it was a very cheap banjo. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it wasn't inexpensive, but it turned out to be not a very good banjo. All right, it, it didn't really matter. I, it was my first. It was also my first foray into tinkering and disassembling and and changing things and which is which we could talk about later banjos being yeah, sort yeah, of, of course. sort of the musician equivalent of you know tinker toys or or legos or something or a harley bike that yeah, you, yeah, that you exactly. can modify yeah and, exactly and it's, it's it's more machine than uh but anyway so what i did was i got the banjo and i wasn't sure where to start but i knew that i liked the stanley brothers mm-hmm. so i Went home and I bought all the early, all of the early Stanley Brothers. They're mm-hmm. the, I think it's Mercury. So somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. The early recordings of the Stanley Brothers, and then I just started putting it in the slowdowner on the computer uh-huh. and writing um, tabs, like no lessons. Okay. I was just like. Where are these notes? It's, it was like... Had you ever even played a stringed instrument before? Like, the sound was so terrible, but I was just like, well, it's that note, and I know it's got to be there. Um, yes, yeah, so I, I had a years and years of electric guitar as a teenager. Okay, so, okay. 
Yeah. So you knew about tab and you knew how it worked. I, and, yeah, I knew yeah. about tab. I knew how to make tone with my fingers and frets. Mm-hmm. I get, so, yeah, so we, let's rewind to there <laughs> yeah. just to tie it all together. When I was five, my parents put me in piano lessons. Uh-huh. So I started, started music early at five. Yeah, so yeah, reading great. music, understanding music. And then when I hit the fourth grade, I started playing cello. Oh, cool. Yeah. So, so there's some history going yeah. on, yeah. And then when I hit the seventh grade, I wanted to play piano in the jazz band. Uh-huh. So I, went, I mustered my courage and went up to the crazy jazz teacher after school and said, I want to play piano in the jazz band. And he said, spots filled, kid. And I was like, dang it. And then he said, wait a minute. You play the cello. And I said, yep. And he said, hang on a second. And he went into his office and he came out and he handed me a black Hondo 2 electric bass and Mel Bay bass book one. And he said, learn this and you got a gig, kid. All right. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so I started playing bass in the seventh grade jazz band, which quickly escalated to me needing a guitar. Uh-huh. So. So I was a young guitar shredder in in you know junior high and high school. Yeah, so, excellent. So I had anyway back to the banjo. Now I had string. I did have stringed instrument background. Cool, cool. So I, I knew what to do with it, but I didn't know anything about what to do with the banjo. You just heard this sludgy yep. Ralph Stanley picking as slow by. as possible, <laughs> like just marking the notes, writing the tab out, and then and then after I had tab it out, I would sit there and. And just go note by note with my three fingers and my picks on, trying to make sense of it. So, are you able to demonstrate any of those early? Th- like, do you still know any of that uh, uh, well, early yeah, Stanley y- stuff? Yeah, I bet. I, I bet I could. Uh, like the way. Uh, let's see if I can play it. It's the morning. I think there's some sort of banjo union law about not picking a note before noon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the the one I remember best. And then later, I... Is a little... Yeah, his, his break to Little Maggie. Little Maggie, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I think he was capered up to five. Either, he was either they were he was either capoed up to four and they were in B, but it, but because of the, the recording pitch, or, because yeah, of the right, recording right. pitch, it pushed it up to C, or they recorded it in C. I'm not sure which. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah. So I learned it at capo five. Okay. And took it apart. So. So where'd you go from there? You start just sponging up banjo music, or, or where else did you go? Because someone like me who more or less comes from like a bluegrass, newgrass background. You've you've ended up somewhere that's more like it's finger style, but it's more like Ozark, old timey. Yeah, it's, um, it, it, how, how did that happen? Uh, that that happened because I can't leave anything alone. I, <laughs> with with music, I always creativity is is the core of it, and so um, at this point, I like to say. There's as many banjo styles as there are banjo players. Yeah, there really and, are. You know, there's there's no such thing as banjo law, and and so you just start eking out your own way. After you know where I went after after at the very beginning was I just started 
taking stuff apart. I got really into Tony Trishka's stuff. Hmm. He uh, put out this this great album on uh, on Folkways, and I can't believe I can't. Re- I think it's called Territory. There is one called with Territory. Mike yeah. Seeger appears on that album. It was one of Mike Seeger's last recordings, and Pete Seeger appears on that album. They do Leatherwing Bat, uh, and uh, so there were all these old school legends on on that album it's just a gorgeous album yeah and i started so i started transcribing and learning that stuff and then that led me to mike seeger which led me to the new lost city ramblers Uh which led me to so much amazing history of early american music that that he and john cohen and uh, tom paley curated you know so what was what do you think it was about those styles that really caught your ear and made you go that way instead of maybe I don't know Trishka's other stuff or or Bela Fleck or or somewhere else that you maybe could have gone? Uh, for lack of a better word, the primitivism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I I love things that are raw, that have stink, that have a weird pocket. Uh-huh. You know, like what is that? That's deep and compelling. It's and it's not, it's not polished. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like it translates to modern ears. But when you put it on, oh, it just gets you. You know, so I just think, some sort of authenticity that it has. Or? Yeah, I'm afraid of that word. Just you know, yeah. but for for a number of reasons, you know, because like that can lead you down to the line of like like birthright to play play traditional music or like like it can lead you down all sorts of paths but but all sorts of for realism okay yeah well, i'll call it for realism yeah, you yeah. Know? I'm, I'm a for realist like you can just tell that it's just it's what it is it's organic and it's through it's through and then i quickly realized from having a jazz background where you can where you can descend into chromaticism anytime you want mm-hmm. you know you could you can modulate things around and you can play a wrong note and play it again and convince people that it it was intentional. You know, yeah, exactly. In traditional country music, you cannot do that. There is nowhere to hide. Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if you don't play something that's consonant and placed well in time, it's going to just jump out at you. And so there's this amazing challenge. Albert King said, the hardest kind of music to play is simple music and the blues is simple music, but mm-hmm. like simple music is not simple and it's not, it, it is some of the most challenging music to play. And so I think, well, I like was, you said, there's nowhere to hide with simple music. It yeah, exposes you. Exactly. Um, and Albert King playing blues was very exposed and he killed it. Yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah. So I was, I was, I was drawn, drawn to that approach. You know, do you have any advice for, or maybe just share what your approach was to ensure that you played with that? What'd you call it for realism? Yeah, for realism. How, how do you hold yourself accountable to that sort of? Uh, well, I have I have a mantra um, that uh, is from uh, John Hartford, and I think it's a, I think it's in the middle of because he would sort of sing words monotone and say fascinating things. Yeah, <laughs> I think it's on a uh, Speed of the Old Longbow on Rebel Raid. He says, "Play your tune to suit yourself, then you're as good as anybody else." 
And I just, uh, it just, when I heard that, I was like, well, that's, that's what it is, you know? Just play the music that you want to hear. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and play it, play it your way. It's uh, I mean, it's interesting because you have to have a certain discipline mm-hmm. when you, when you practice music, you have to learn how to learn, you know? Sure. So I think you, you have to be honest with yourself about what you sound like. And, um, I remember another thing a teacher said in Spanish class uh, way back when, and she was like, you don't get to coin new words unless you're completely fluent in a language. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't just make up new words. So respecting and understanding the people that did stuff before you and listening, listen, 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 dive in, take, take it apart. But then also allow yourself to play things a certain way. Look for look for the essence of a piece of music rather than than the specifics of it. And, okay, and uh, and let it flow through you. <laughs> what What are some elements of your style that you think, or what did you work on to develop your personal style? Or and- what I did, specifically what I did was I played, I learned melodies mm-hmm. by ear. And then I figured out how to put them into a role of some sort, mm-hmm. you know, either claw hammer or two finger thumb lead, index lead. Oh, so we can we can get technical here with the Ralph Stanley thing and the Earl Scruggs thing because I learned a bunch of Scruggs stuff too. Because mm-hmm. this this really this really gets to the heart of the matter is Scruggs was an a thumb lead player, thumb lead melodies right. on the thumb. Beats are on the thumb. Yeah. Ralph Stanley was an index lead player. Yeah. And he, uh, melody on the, on the index, uh, beat on the index. And so from, from learning Ralph stuff and then learning Earl stuff, I ended up putting that together by I would just pick out a melody first, mm-hmm. understand what the chords were behind it, and then figure out how to create uh, some form of rhythmic role around that after the fact. Melody first, then the role. Mm-hmm. So what happened was sometimes I would play melody off the index finger, sometimes I would play melody off the thumb, and it was always a matter of convenience. If, it's, if the melody was up on the first string, I would play melody off the index finger. Because mm-hmm. if you're playing melody on the first string off the thumb... You're gonna in a roll. You're gonna end up twisting di- around, or, yeah. you, or you're gonna end up double picking the string. So, so if I was to give a two finger thing, like if I play it on the second string, this is a thumb lead, simple melody, right? So, mm-hmm. but I, if I took that thumb lead over to the first string and played that same thing, Then, yeah. then, then you end up double picking a string, and you're not so. So, in order to solve that, because I loved all sorts of the climber stuff and Kentucky upstroke, I loved that sound, and like that first string is the most convenient with downstrokes. The first string is the most convenient string to get melody yeah, off of. Yeah. So, so what I did was I just inverted it. So now, now we're playing. We're, 
actually the way I do it now is the, the lead is off my middle finger. So, so. So that's middle, index, thumb, middle, index, thumb. But it's still in a bum to me. So, so I got to where I would just unconsciously be able to switch back and forth between thumb lead and index lead, index lead. like sort of at will, just because I always was always practicing playing the melody first. And then, and then the role starts to become like a practiced habit. You know, mm-hmm. I, that's, it's hard, hard to explain like, a little bit. But. Yeah, it almost has to be reverse engineered in a way or, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, well, it has because I'm a music educator. Um, I have reverse engineered it. Mm-hmm. I've, I've distilled it down to, to teachable and explainable principles. But, but I didn't, wasn't explain, when I was learning it, I wasn't explaining it to myself. I was just. So like, let's go there for a second because that's kind of, I was explaining to a student yesterday, that's sort of the thing with banjo is how to like take this melody that you want to play mm-hmm. and figure out how to disguise, you know, not disguise it, but integrate it into these roles in a way that is like hip and cool sounding, but also gives right. you that. Melody, like that's the whole puzzle about yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. What, so what is your advice when you've deconstructed it for, for students of how to, how to approach doing that? Right. Well, well, first let's talk about tab for a second in okay. the response to this. Um, tablature is very useful if you just need to know how it works, when you're just trying to figure out how to get into the banjo and understand how it works. But tab falls short once you get past that moment. Mm-hmm. Because now you have a whole bunch of roll notes and melody notes all written on a page with the same gravity. So when you look at a page, you have roll notes and melody notes, and you don't know which are which. So what happens is you start playing it very slowly, and then as you get it up to tempo, the melody starts to emerge. Mm -hmm. And this is... Completely backwards from how anyone ever played the banjo ever, as far as traditional banjo goes. You find the melody and you and you put some rhythm around it. Yeah. yeah. So so what happens is you end up with uh, tab slaves. So <laughs> essentially, you end up with people that are like, well, I can play. Oh, I don't know what's that song. I'll fly away. I can play. I'll fly away. Really good. The same way over and over again. Uh-huh. And then after that, I don't know what to do with it. You know, so I saw that a lot. I saw that happen to me too. You know, with Tab, I was like, "Well, how do I, how do I start to branch out from this?" So, which which leads back to why I switched over to find the melody first. Mm-hmm. You know, and then and then hunt for ways to put it into a role. The Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast is brought to you by our sponsor, Deering Banjos, who want you to know that banjo teachers love good times. In a recent survey conducted by Deering, over 200 banjo teachers were asked, how likely is it that you would recommend the good time banjo to your students? An overwhelming 85% responded that they would, with the number one reason being that good times are easy to play. Even Good Time Ambassador and 2019 IBMA Banjo Player of the Year, Kristen Scott Benson, agrees that you will not find a better banjo than this in the price range of the Deering Good Time. 
With the good time banjos, Deering understands the importance of starting out with a banjo that will help not hinder your banjo learning experience, which is why they make sure that each and every good time banjo leaves looking great, feeling great, and sounding great. For more information and to see exclusive videos from good time ambassadors Kristen Scott Benson and Pete Wernick, head over to DeeringBanjos.com slash Teachers Love Good Times. Yeah, so so like I'll fly away, for example. Um, yeah, I guess this kind of segues into another question: is something that fascinates me about how you play is you do seem to go between. You might do a three finger style that actually resembles really bluegrassy stuff. You yeah. might do a two finger style that resembles other older styles, and and you you got some claw hammer going. And is there a way that you decide the best way to to approach i don't know we could use i'll fly away as an example or something but um well some of it i decide mysteriously just like all creative endeavors yeah i'm just like oh i'm digging on what i'm doing with that you know just because you just stumble across it i Mm -hmm. mean that's i mean that's the thing about music is you spend time with music until you have ideas or spend time with music until you find have something that you really um care about so but yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure how I make those decisions. Uh, honestly, some of it has to do with how how my partner Betsy Ellis feels about what I'm playing on mm-hmm. something. <laughs> I sure, mean, yeah, sure. If it's something for concert, if it's something for concert, we both you know have really in depth dialogue about what works and what doesn't. And what the to what degree is. are you a purist in terms of looking at where the song comes from? and maybe trying to play it in a style that's closer to whatever your source is for playing it. Does that factor into? Absolutely. I would say all degrees Mm -hmm. Um, being like from absolutely respecting your source and digging into your sort into source material to all, all the way to um, let's just do it how we do it. Mm -hmm. Like the whole spectrum. Yeah. That being said, I mean this, that your source is everything, you know, mm-hmm. we, we don't ever, if we're doing traditional music, an old tune or an old song ever just say, well, you know, I learned it at a jam, so let's just do it. You know, we're, we're always like, well, who recorded it? Where did it come from? What region did it come from? Let's learn about it. Let's listen to the, because tunes, and I don't want to talk about this too much, but I will say it quickly. Tunes homogenize in jams and sure. in the scene, which is, which is great because it's common ground. We're sharing music and it's really important. But when you go back to some early sources and see what, you know, the early, the earliest recordings and see what they were really doing with it. It's, it's amazing yeah. sometimes to hear how changed it is, you know, how, how less syncopated it is, how smooth it is, how many extra, extra color notes are in there. So. Are you familiar with a banjo player called uh, Sam Guthridge? He's in like the D.C. area. Mm, no. He, he was on the show, and, and what you're saying almost exactly mirrors his approach. And he's said that when you go back and research a lot of this old music, you hear where bluegrass comes from, but bluegrass did it by taking out a lot of this funkiness, and it's pared it down into this really smooth stuff. And what he enjoys doing is going back and like, 
reincorporating all the stuff that got removed. Yeah. And it's amazing what you can find when you, yeah. when you do that. Absolutely. And if you're looking for that for realism or that stink, as I like to call it, you know, <laughs> um, I mean, you play like what you listen to. Mm-hmm. Like if you were um, like a jazz player, you know, if just any instrument, if you uh, constantly listen to Charles Mingus, mm-hmm. you're going to have that, stink that feel that understanding that dig for it depth that really stretchy interesting pocket that's just just so ferociously deep but you know if you listen to spirogyra constantly (laughs) you're just gonna have some slick elevator music sound to your pocket because it's what you're internalizing sure so absolutely going back to those the old sources and listening listening to that music not just for the specific notes and stuff. Because one of the things to remember about field recordings or kitchen recordings is that a lot of these people were very old when they got recorded. Yeah. So so if they're scratchy or have some intonation or rhythm things, not all of that is authenticity. Some of it is just that they were 90. Yeah. You know, so you have, so you have to sort of decipher. Like, But at any rate... If, yeah, I wish I could have heard yep. like Sunhouse in his prime or something exactly. like that. Exactly. Yep. So speaking of what you listen, you know, you playing like what you listen to. How often do you feel your jazz piano history has still comes up in in your banjo playing? Oh, oh, plenty. Mostly just because I know music theory. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you know, mostly just because I know why what notes do what. Okay. Yeah, that's that's almost the entirety of of how that's applied. How much do you improvise a lot on the banjo? A Quite lot, a bit? yeah, a okay. lot. It's and um, e- even if it's not um, exploratory improvisation, even if it's just in the midst of playing a tune, I like to internalize what I've learned so well that it's fluid, so that like the improv- improvisation may be subtle. Mm-hmm. But I'm never just I never just learn a thing one way and just repeat it. I can always offset notes or play pivot play to a pivot, else, play yeah. a fill. And I consider that a form of improvisation. When you know something so well that you're not locked into playing it a specific way, then you can be free to move around in it. But you're also free to honor that melody. You don't have to you know, yeah. play tritone substitutions or or like a a chromatic descending echo of the of the line or whatever. You don't have to do all that stuff to be improvising. Sure, so, sure. Also, just the the act of improvisation. There's melody, there's chords, and there's rhythm. And honestly, I, I'd put rhythm on top. There's rhythm, melody, <laughs> yeah. chords. Especially, here's a piece of advice if you're learning banjo, is get your time together. <laughs> get, like, get your time together. Like, everybody will forgive some weird notes or not even hitting the right notes at all. But nobody will forgive bad time. Like, so then the obvious follow-up to that is how does one oh, yeah. do that? Yeah. Oh, well, I, first I want to talk about the spectrum of, okay. of, um, of improvisation. We'll is, put a pin in that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, we're on. We're headed there. So we have, we have rhythm, we have melody, and we have chords. So, if you learn the melody, mm-hmm. and then you learn how how your fiddler likes the piece chorded, assuming you're working with a fiddler. Yeah. But um, if if you learn how the chord form of the song, 
And then you have some rhythmic approaches to build a, a pocket or a bed for that song or tune. Then what you have is a spectrum of what to play. You can play explicitly melody. You can just play the melody. You, and hopefully in two octaves, so you can learn it low and high. Yeah. Then you can play explicitly rhythm and chords. And then you can play some melody, like finish lines or hint at melody while you're playing chords. So you have an entire spectrum to move back and forth on at all times. Yeah. Um, and just being free to do that and relating that to your emotion and the spirit of the tune and the performance, just moving around on that spectrum is, is a powerful uh, act of improvisation. Yeah, it really is. That's a yeah. real Hartfordy thing too, isn't it? Absolutely. That, yep. I think that's what he was big on is... Yeah, just, yeah, just constantly swaying between this rhythmic, melodic, yeah, and it's se- separation or whatever. Yeah, and it's incredible to listen to and uh, as as output because you just when you listen to this, well, especially "Speed of the Old Longbow," that mm-hmm. album from John Hartford, as far as uh, one of the John Hartford string band fiddle tune albums, that album is just incredible because they created a game, yeah, where um, every I believe eight bars, you had options. You could play melody, rhythm, single note, layout. There's a, there's a whole bunch of lists of things that, that you could do every eight bars. Yeah. And every eight bars, you had to change what you were doing. And so as a result, you have this fiddle tune album, but it's like, it sounds <laughs> like progressive rock. It's so, it shifts in, you couldn't arrange so it like that if you wanted you, to. No, no, it, it, uh, it would be a life masterwork to to actually write out what the arrangements for for Speed of the Old Longbow are. But right. because of putting putting these um, parameters in place, they just created music that couldn't have been created any other way. Yeah, yeah, that's incredible. Yep. So, how do you develop time? Good rhythm. Ah, well, I want to say a metronome, but I don't. Um, I do. It is it is worth it to spend time with a metronome. Okay. Is that what you did? I've spent a lot of hours with a metronome mm-hmm. over the years. Absolutely. Because I started music lessons at age five and I went through college studying music, I just have just these inherent practice principles that I adhere to. So that's like more academic. Yeah, well, it's not necessarily academic. It's just it's just internalized. Mm-hmm. The, you know. Like the same way I say coffee in the morning, I say, well, is this rhythm okay? <laughs> uh-huh. um, so it's it's hardwired into me. But I'm also a teacher, so I have to teach, pe- encourage people to work on their time. And one thing that I've been discovering recently is that while people will turn on a metronome while they practice, they will not often stick with it hmm. like like they, they don't always hear when they're not on metronome like it's not the, the metronome is is not enough to they haven't developed the discipline to stick to it so if they make a mistake they may loop back and so my solution to this with my students is a band in a box i create rhythm tracks backing tracks that have the chord form mm-hmm. in there to play along with and you can't cheat Right. You you like you can cheat a metronome, you can just like you can mess up go back a few measures start or whatever. Again, yeah, start right. again. Like 
But with the backing track, especially without the melody, you can't cheat. You mm-hmm. have to, you have to audiate the melody, yeah, and stick stick to it. Or otherwise, you'll get lost, and you have to wait till the whole thing comes back around. Or even better, wait till you hear that distinctive four chord halfway through the B part and and jump in because you know where you're at. So, so it I really a more realistic situation. Yeah, to yeah, real life. Yeah. So it it, tra- it trains you in a lot in a lot of ways, but it also acts as a metronome even when you don't know it. So so I really like, among other things, providing a backing track. Yeah, I enjoy band in the box for that yeah. exact reason too. And, and if nothing else, then it's just a little less annoying to listen to than click click click. Absolutely. You know, at least you Absolutely. have something that kind yeah. of sounds like drums or something. Yeah. No, I I, <laughs> I still just go into a room and put on like some round the horn. One four five, yeah. bluegrass thing on band in a box and just rip rip guitar solos for a couple Me too, hours. Man. Yeah, Me too. just just for just cause. <laughs> so I, I I only heard this word yesterday and it's a great word and you just used it. Define audiate. Oh, audiate is when you mentally internally. So audiate is the sound equivalent of visualize, uh-huh. essentially. So. If you are running a melody in your mind, you're audiating a melody. Yeah. You're imagining hearing a piece of music. It, and intentionally, like not just like abstractly, oh yeah, Toto, Africa. But like <laughs> but if you're actually like hearing it in real time, if when when you're when you're processing a piece of music yeah. in time, but internally rather than rather than singing or playing is to is to audiate yeah that's a great word i'd I'd never heard it before yeah that's cool yep let's talk about your banjos okay what do you you have you have two things here go take us through what these are this is woody and this is grandpa's hammer oh nice to meet you guys yeah (laughs) uh so you, you have woody what's uh what is distinctive about woody and who made it and what's uh um what do you like about it i made it I made you this. did, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I built this banjo with the help uh, of uh, Mark Fransky, who's a great, great builder, and he oh. was he was one of the original builders for Hawthorne banjos. Oh, uh, interesting. But um, but he's especially a great uh, mandolin builder. So um, okay, pretty much I was turned free to to build it, and I've taken some Lutheran classes and 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 have have a background in in some of that stuff too. But um, pretty much, he would just stop me if I was about to do something stupid, <laughs> okay. you know. And other than that, it was it was just just me. So yeah, cool. Um, so what this is is it's a um, it's a block rim. Yeah, Paduke, I saw it. it's Paduke like a multicolored one. It's really yeah, really interesting looking. Yeah, with the walnut tone ring. And you, you said it was a block rim with what in maple? Pa- Paduke. Paduke. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Is that similar to like a rosewood or something? What is yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of it before, but I don't know. Like, it's it's total a it's a real hardwood. It might be somewhere somewhere between rosewood and and ebony or something. Somewhere okay, on that spectrum, it's really interesting because it's like this deep brown, almost kind of purplish. But that's because it oxidizes. If I was to uh, sand through this right now, uh-huh. it would turn like a bright orange, bright orange red. Oh yeah. wow! But then it it darkens pretty quickly over that must have been days. pretty stunning when it was brand new looking. oh yeah it's 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 amazing looking so the reason i call this woody is because it it's a wooden tone ring block rim mm-hmm. and then all the marquetry all the inlays that i did are also 
wood. Yeah, that so, inlay is is yeah. really great. So these this is a, a flamey kind of maple, and this is um, these diamonds are also Paduke. I cut those out of Paduke. So all the inlays is woodwork, and then the nautical rose is all the woods that are in the banjo. So Paduke and maple. And you did all that wood, wood inlay yourself. Yes, that's great. I did. Um, uh, Mark helped me. I mean, I actually did it. But uh, Mark helped me in that he had a laser cutter, so we drew some of these tiny shapes with with um, with the thing, and then and then laser cut the veneer to get the shapes. And even so, they're so small in the wood grain. What we did was we just made a whole bunch more than we actually needed of all uh-huh. the shapes, and then you still had to cut them up with cut them out with an exacto, and just hold them with tweezers and, and sand them and stuff. There was oh man, this this nautical rose here is like. Just the crowning achievement of, of yeah, that, of, of, that sounds it was, very it was tedious. It was, but. it was terrifying because <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I could go into detail about it, but but I but I won't because I'm more interested in music. But so is that a normal size head, eleven inch? Yeah, it's eleven. Oh, I don't know why it looks wider to me for some yeah, reason. But the main the, the main point of interest in this band for me point of interest in this banjo is that I set the neck further up okay so a lot of times on a banjo the the fingerboard will be sort of flush with the deck Mm -hmm. but i moved it up so that the fingerboard is above the neck and you can't see this because this is audio but up by right where the neck meets the body i'm running my pinky finger freely under the strings right there so i have yeah you got a a decent amount of clearance a, a ton of string clearance Right, right where the uh, neck meets the body. So. so, so basically, that gives you like a lower left hand action, but a higher right hand action. Is that yeah, sort of the y- thing? Yeah, with it? it lets you have a bunch of right hand high action there, but without having to sacrifice action um, in the left hand. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um, and you and you really enjoy that wooden tone ring sound. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 plunky. It's just, it just it's just a very sort of different And we should also mention that yeah part of that slightly mellower sound that you're hearing part of that's the wooden tone ring but you also have a renaissance head on there yep and you're using plastic uh finger picks too which is Unusual for a lot of us, but if, yes, um, I'm using these Recording King Ivoroid finger picks, and this is a, this is a plea to anyone out there in the world. If you have Recording King Ivoroid finger picks, please contact me because they've stopped making these. Oh no! And, as and of I'm, when? Uh, as of like a year ago, and I'm down to my last set. Ooh. But I love these picks, and nobody makes them. I even called Recording King, and they were like, "No, man." <laughs> so, yeah, there's got to be there's yeah, got to be a bunch I've, out I've there scoured somewhere. eBay somewhere. Some music shop in Alabama has a drawer full of them. You so, know it. Yeah. So if anybody has Recording King Ivoroid finger picks, please contact me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Excellent. So and back to so the other one of the other things that de- really defines the tone of this banjo is that I have a no knot tailpiece on there mm-hmm. instead of. A breakover tailpiece, so I have less breakover pressure, right? Which translates to to more low end, a little bit less volume, a little less brightness, but more low end. 
Yeah, that's awesome. It's got a really cool, yeah, really cool versatile sound between all those yep. things. You can really, you know, you could probably play some bluegrass on it if you needed to. You, you get you can write down the bridge, yeah, and it'll still it'll still pop. It'll pop. Yep. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, that man, good work. Yeah, yeah that's thanks. that's really cool. So, so sort of with a. Th- thumb lead style on an old Missouri tune I might sort of be prone to picking up closer to the neck joint so Those pretty heavy strings on that. Too? Very. Yeah, it seems yeah, like it. Yeah, they're very, very heavy strings. So, yeah. Like, uh, how heavy are we talking? Like elevens, oh. twelves? Oh no, no. This is my low string is probably a twenty-six. Yeah. I think my first string is a fourteen. So I think it's like a fourteen. Yeah. Four, oh man, I, fourteen, sixteen, um, like eighteen or nineteen, and then a twenty-six on the low string. And probably a thirteen on my fifth string. Dang. Yeah, yeah, like very. That's heavy. beefed up. Yeah. Um, how about this other this other one? What did you oh, say? Yeah. Grandpa's hammer. Grandpa's hammer. <laughs> Pick this up. And this is the one I got to hear last night. Is that right? I did play this on stage. Yeah. Last cool. Night. Yeah. Exactly. Um, Speaking of heavy strings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Now we're gonna go really heavy. <laughs> <laughs> so Grandpa's hammer. This is also a block rim. I've stained it so you can't see the um, the colors, which I'm not sure why I chose to do that, but I kind of wish I hadn't. Because um, this banjo started out life as a $300 recording king. Okay. Um, and then over time, I just kept changing it. I'd modify it and then make it better. So I took the, like... I pulled the frets and I um, radius the fingerboard uh-huh. and, uh, and and refretted it with the with the radius and then I modified it to where it had two coordinator rods instead of one and then um, then I found this Pennington block rim so I I, I turned turned the block rim down and. Um, because of this neck offset thing, the forward offset thing. Oh yeah, you and, got the same thing going it, on. This in order one too. to do that, though, I had to graft a piece of mahogany onto the heel. You can't even tell it's there, but oh, this, to this, accommodate this, that second coordinator yeah, so this, rod. This heel is now like an inch, an inch deeper oh, than wow. it um, yeah. used to be. In, exactly to to accommodate the second coordinator rod, but with the yeah, when you move it, when you shift it up, it's, the sh- it's, there's no neck shift. there anymore. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> so. So the reason I and then eventually I like I cut the headstock to a different shape and and did an overlay on it. Yeah. So because after what I mean, there's nothing other like, other than the inlay on the fingerboard. There's like nothing recognizable. Yeah, about the it. inlay on yeah. the fingerboard is the only thing that that betrays its 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 former life. <laughs> um, but the, but it was never not a banjo. It just kept changing, and then all of a sudden. So so I call it Grandpa's hammer because. If you inherit your grandpa's hammer, 
and you break the handle and you put a new handle on it. And then you bust the head and you put a new head on it. Is it still Grandpa's hammer? <laughs> so, you know, in some ways, yes, because it started out as Grandpa's hammer yeah. and you were working with it and right. you kept it alive. I mean, who knows how many times Grandpa did that beforehand, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, so that, that's where I came up with that's this, hilarious. this concept yeah. of Grandpa's hammer. Yeah, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, so the the most obvious difference with this one is is that it's uh it's low. It is low. Yeah, how do you have that tuned? And is that oh you we wanted to touch on this too, the different tunings you use and, and oh, yeah. how how you switch between and, and the skill involved in that. This is a good place to start with that. Yep. Okay. So most of the time this lives in banjo players have, have multiple ways of confronting the key of D and the key of E but um, for me what I did was I just put really heavy strings on this banjo and tuned it as if it was in standard G tuning uh-huh. uh, just a fourth lower so we have A D F sharp A D yeah yep. so it ends up sounding kind of similar to like a Seeger long neck Except without a longer neck. Yeah, I think I think I think with long necks the standard thing is to do is to tune it to E. Right. And then so I have a step below that. Below that. But but um also it's strung with enough string tension that I can actually tune this to C. Oh, way down. Yeah, so I can go That's an, cool. I can d- go another whole step below where where it's at right now so give us a demo of what this what this sounds like it's really cool let's see here i gotta think of something to play sound yeah yeah thank you is that lost indian uh dry and dusty oh okay yep yep excellent yeah but good another those are tune yep <laughs> are, do they sound similar or am i just way off uh <laughs> I, I thought the a parts sounded similar uh well i mean when you're talking about lost indian like if, if somebody says you want to play lost indian the the, the obvious response that everyone should make in the whole room in unison is which one because okay. because it's it's a case of a different tune same name there there are many many versions of that so yeah i mean probably one of the most famous ones is probably the sort of 
Cherokee Shuffle derived one. That, you know, I guess that's what through. I was thinking of. Yeah, coming, um, coming from yeah, the but, uh, bluegrassy uh, world. Betsy and I play one from Bob Holt. Uh, uh-huh. Ozark Fiddler, and it's a uh, it's a lot different. Yeah, yeah, cool. Well, Clark, the only thing that might be more important than banjos today is lunch. Oh boy, and we're running up against it. So, oh no. So, man, really enjoyed hearing what all your deep banjo philosophies and everything like that. It's it's really great. But I did want to give a few minutes. Do either of you have questions for Clark? Anything? We we actually have a. a a small but attentive audience here. Yeah, excellent. Yes, at, thank at Great you. Lakes Music Camp. So, if either of you have anything you're dying to know about, yeah, shoot, please. Yeah, what do you got? Chime in. Sure. Uh, when you have the deeper strings, do you use a crow-spaced uh, um, bridge uh, to, I don't know, make it bigger so you can actually uh, get those get to those bigger strings? Um, yeah, or, it does. It does make standard, sense. Um, well, I'm I'm sure that I started with a bridge blank and, and cut the string spacing, just to maximize the width of the fingerboard. So as much as much as far apart width wise as I can get the strings here at the at the edge of the end of the fingerboard is probably where I put those slots. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't I didn't carve the bridge. I started with the bridge blank without slots in it. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Thanks. Yeah, cool. Um, Thank you so and, much. It's well, been, yeah, and before the last, yeah. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I do want to give you the chance, tell everyone, like, websites or how to, like, find your music or find you to come see a show, take a lesson. Uh, the Probably the best way to contact me is BetsyAndClark.com, B-E-T-S-E-A-N-D-C-L-A-R-K-E.com. If you just Google Betsy and Clark, any any random spelling, uh, it'll you'll find our website. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be something. Yeah, and also um, Short Round String Band. Dot com mm-hmm. and I, I we're, I'm really lucky to be in a band with my banjo brother Ryan Spearman who is um, so we sometimes do double banjo stuff but he plays everything as well and he no one's called the cops yet no I've one's called that. the cops oh, yet oh man um, but he was a little plug for his website he's a great climber teacher and he's got a, a website called playbetterbanjo.com oh I've seen and that and I, yeah. I highly recommend uh checking that out as well but short round string band betsy.com betsyandclark.com shoot me an email and i do skype lessons or or any anything you'd like yeah yep. great well it's been a pleasure clark thanks a thank, lot for thank taking you the so time. much this has been a blast yep and that's going to be all for this episode of the picky fingers banjo podcast featuring clark wyatt of the duo Betsy and Clark and also of the Short Round String Band. Special thanks are in order to today's Patreon supporters, Tony Newbolt and Russ Fotava. Go to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to learn all about that. There were two sound clips that you heard. The first was Noah Came to Eden, recorded by Tony Trishka. The second was Rebel Raid, recorded by the John Hartford String Band. You can contact the show by emailing me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Other than that, look for me on all the uh, social media sites. Always love interacting with the listeners out there. And I think that's going to do it for me. So I'll uh, get back to work on the next one and I'll see you then.
Over and out. Over and out.